our breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 13th of November and my name is Eidwin. I'll be hosting you for Wednesday Breakfast this morning. Before I'd like to start the show, I'd just like to acknowledge that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Burrung people of the Kulin Nations. I'd like to pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Current efforts to establish treaties in Victoria are diminished by the Victorian state government's decision to disregard First Nations sovereignty. And with that, good morning. Um, it is November, believe it or not. I thought it was October. We've got a pretty interesting show lined up for you. We're going to be talking throughout the show to Desiree Kyle from the um, National Union of Students. And she's going to be talking about federal government's TAFE policy, which is going to be fascinating. I know from a student perspective off at RMIT University. Um, yeah, I'll be interested to hear what's going on in the TAFE sector. So that's coming up at about 8, uh, sorry, 7.45. And then at 8 o'clock, we'll be listening, uh, we'll be talking to Andrew from the Philippines Australian Solidarity Association. Um, now, Andrew's group, the PS, PASA for short, actually spoke at the IMARC protest that happened a couple of weeks ago. And I thought the speech there was so fantastic that we ought to get them on to kind of give us more information about who Oceana Gold are, which is um, a mining company in the Philippines, which has been wrecking huge environmental and humanitarian costs. So we'll be talking to Andrew at 8 o'clock. Then throughout the rest of the show, we'll be listening to previous conversations from the UN International Day of Peace in Melbourne. Um, the forum was called No Australia Support for US Wars. And we're going to be talking, listening to kind of a couple of speakers uh, and what they had to say, as well as a segment from the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, which I'm very excited about. Again, with the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, they were there at the IMARC protests, uh, or at least the legal observers were. So I thought it could be interesting to hear about how they kind of regulate that. Anyway, a lot of fascinating conversations have come up. I'm going to chuck us to the nitty-gritty. We're going to go into this early and, yeah, hit on some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. Nitty-gritty, 
And as always, that was the nitty-gritty by the beautiful Shirley Elise. Now, fun fact, uh, Will and I dance to that theme every single week. And it takes a lot of effort not to um, turn our mics on and continue the song singing. Anywho, for alternative news this week, we're going to have a little bit of a breakdown of uh, Morrison's speech at the Queensland Resource Council, which actually happened uh, not last week, but the week before, I think, at the start of November. Now, the 7am podcast did a wonderful job. 7am podcast is done by Schwartz Media, um, also known as The Monthly, if you read the paper. However, I thought I'd summarise it if you're not um, going to listen to that podcast yourself. So... Morrison's speech to the Queensland Resources Council kind of struck a new chord in his direction for Australia. It was blatantly authoritarian and it set out a direction for Australia which, surprise, surprise, is anti-protester. To read you out some of the quotes from the speech, uh, he announced that new threats to the future and resources sector has emerged. A new breed of radical activism is on the march. And throughout the speech he refers back to this radical activism, saying that it's apocalyptic in tone, It brooks no compromise. It's all or nothing. Alternative views are not permitted. It's a dogma that pits cities against regional Australia, one that cannot resist sneering at the wealth-creating industries of regional and remote Australia. Now, I thought it was important to kind of read you some of these quotes because they have been called out already for being extraordinarily divisive and full of rhetoric that could be very dangerous. Um, As protesters, as a protester myself, we've been called anarchists. Um, indulgent and selfish. And this is all to kind of paint us in a light where we are scary and unapproachable to middle-class Australians, whoever middle-class Australians are. Um, Scott Morrison often refers to these people as quiet Australians. Again, an imaginary group that doesn't really have any definition but is used to kind of justify any policy ends that ScoMo feels on the day. Anyway, the really scary part of this speech was not his name-calling, but instead his suggestion that he's planning to clamp down on secondary boycotts, uh, that is, to pressure companies to stop servicing business of sectors they oppose. And this has really become relevant with the Adani conversation and the fact that a lot of activists have turned towards pressuring companies that are assisting Adani uh, to try and deter them away. So it's it's a boycott, but it's a secondary one. It's through intermediaries. And in the speech to the Queensland Resources Council, Scott Morrison has told Australian corporations that we need to listen to the quiet shareholders and not these environmental protesters. So, again, this use of quiet Australians, um, it's very echoing of Menzies' rhetoric of the forgotten people and even Howard, but the quiet shareholders, again, that use of rhetoric coming through. He's also labelled that it's about the whole business ecosystem rather than the environment, and I thought it was rather fascinating that his use of rhetoric decided to make the business, the economy, the real environment, rather than, you know, the actual environment, which is currently burning in the country or being logged in the country or continuing to be disrespected and dismissed. Anyway, it was just kind of bringing up the rhetoric again, that idea of apocalyptic in tone, the dogma, divisive jealousy. We, We as activists are being belittled, dismissed and gaslighted into believing we're wrong. And I think what this speech brings out most importantly is that we need to be having these conversations about climate change and climate crisis, not just with people who already agree with us, but the people who don't agree with us, who could be sucked into this quiet Australian rhetoric. Because, I mean, this speech comes at a time where anti-lock-on laws have been introduced in Queensland, so that's a $6,000 fine or two years in jails for activists who are 
um, affixing themselves to infrastructure through things such as, you know, those those concrete barrels or things like that. It's also come at a time where, where there has been introduced legislation entitled the right to farm in which hosts, um, which hosts harsher penalties for activists, offenders being punished with three years jail or fines up to $22,000 for entering farmers. Um, land, so harsher laws for trespass. And again, that targets the uh, activists we saw earlier this year, the vegan activists. And this sort of legislation is bringing in new terms such as the nuisance shield to protect farmers in areas of urban sprawl from complaints about what is deemed to be normal farm practice. And also new offences such as inciting or causing trespass, which hold, again, weightier fines. I mean, $22,000 is not a light fine. And this also comes at a time where there's been calls for permits for protesters. So the push by conservative government for protesters and activists um, to have to lodge a permit in order to demonstrate something that is legal currently in New South Wales, but has been historically fought against in Victoria. And also this speech comes in the face of these secondary boycotts, which have been quite effective up until now. So while Scott Morrison has been kind of signalling this direction for a long time, the speech he had last week at the Queensland Resources Centre Council really cemented it. And again, this is, this is where I come back to conversations. I think it's important that we would be talking to people who could be sucked in by the rhetoric of this and really challenging those conversations. We need to make sure we're not being morally sanctimonious or absolutist when we approach this because <laughs> I can tell you from my own personal experience, it does nothing. But we can hold we can hold the promise that we do have the facts, we do have the support, we have the scientists, experts, and most importantly, we have people with lived experience on our side. So that's my kind of alternative news, a very scary authoritarian speech, and the light at the end of the tunnel being hopefully uh, our ability to change people's minds through less rhetoric-induced uh, conversations. Apart from that, I also have a few events coming up this weekend which might be interesting. On the 16th of November, there is going to be a massive slut walk through Melbourne. So that's starting at 1 o'clock and going till 3 o'clock at the State Library of Victoria. Nice, nice traditional spot to start a protest. And basically the demands are simple, end slut shaming, end victim blaming and end rape culture. So that will be um, a big rally going on on this weekend. And also if you're in the city and you're like damn, I want to do more, there'll also be a System Change Not Climate Change anti-capitalist conference. Um, now, that will be hosted by the Socialist Alternative. They'll be also in the Trades Hall in Carlton and running from 9.30 to 6 o'clock, so it's an all-day thing. And I believe you might have to buy tickets, but I will come back to you. Oh, here we go. For more information and tickets, visit redflag.org.au, System Change uh, Conference. Tickets are $10 for high schoolers, $20 for a concession, and $40 for wage. And that will be having a myriad of sessions kind of going on and special panel discussions, so that should be pretty exciting. Um, again, we'll be coming up with a few other events throughout the show, but I thought we'd kind of flick to our first interview or listen conversation today. So this is Sophie from the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, and within the interview it goes for a little bit, she discusses kind of where Melbourne activist legal support kind of started and what they can't, what their role and functioning is within yeah, Melbourne activism. Cool. Today we're speaking to Sophie of the Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Thank you, Sophie, for being on Completada by Lovely. Thank you for having me. Start by telling us 
when the Melbourne Activist Legal Support was formed and exactly why? Sure. So Melbourne Activist Legal Support, or MELS, as we sometimes refer to ourselves, were born out of the Occupy Melbourne movement. So the legal support team in the Occupy Melbourne movement um, was a, a collective there at the protest site um, collecting legal information and disseminating legal information to Occupy Melbourne protesters. And after the eviction and the, the shutdown of the protest site and the eventual kind of dissolution of, of that protest in the city, uh, it came, became apparent to that group of people that there was still a need for activists to be informed and trained from people within the activist community about their legal rights and how to navigate the legal system when they are engaging in, um, in activism. And that's how MALS was formed. So you're basically informing the average person, the average activist, about their legal and political rights. Yeah, exactly. So we, we run trainings on Know Your Rights with Police. We also offer trainings to organisations and groups themselves about developing their own legal support team to help people who engage in their actions if they are arrested and taken through the court system. Um, and we generally also provide uh, comments and statements um, to the broader public about, about our international and domestic rights to engage in protest activity. And um, are you made up mainly of volunteers that have come from a legal background, i.e. lawyers who are assisting you, or is it purely just, um, you know, volunteers and activists? Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, everyone involved is there a volunteer, on a volunteer basis. Uh, we have um, a few lawyers involved in our core organising team, some paralegals, uh, people who work in the community legal sector but not as a lawyer, uh, law students, and then just general legal nerds who are um, who are interested and um, have have taught themselves without going through the education system. Tell us a bit in detail about some of the work you do at rallies on the ground. Some of it is monitoring police and police behaviour. Can you just talk a little bit about what that involves? Of course. So we, one of the things that we do, aside from the, the training is legal observing, uh, or what is called in other states or other countries um, human rights observing. We attend rallies um, in a fluoro vest so that we're very publicly visible, and we're there to observe the police tactics in terms of responding to, engaging with, and controlling protests, uh, interactions with protesters and police, and um, any people that are arrested, and we try to gather information on, um, on what charges have been laid against those people. And we do this for a few reasons. One of them is to kind of map and keep abreast of Victoria Police's tactics and how they're changing and developing over time and the impact it's having on our rights to protest, as well as to relay back to the public and activist groups about those tactics and about, um, about what they can, can expect and should be prepared for when they do go out on the street. And I guess that varies with each action that is done. Oh, completely. Depending on the groups involved or the um, the political issue that's being um, protested against, the police response varies varies greatly. Can be from a facilitative response to some rallies and marches to a really heavy-handed um, and 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 illegal response to to certain to certain groups and issues. And have you found that over time? I mean. 
Here at 3CR, we're very aware of um, actions and activism, you know, from the last, say, 50 years. So have you, has the organisation found a change in police response to certain actions? So we're, we're undergoing or we're part of a, a, a process at the moment uh, mapping out exactly that. So mapping out over, over the past decades how the police responses have changed um, and in what ways they've changed. So we haven't, that hasn't been finished yet and that report hasn't been um, completely finalised. So I'm very interested and we're all very interested to see what that final product looks at because it will give us and the public a really um, succinct and clear explanation about how and whether and that has changed. But we can, police brutality and police overacting at protests is is nothing new in Australia or across the world. Um, you know, resistance from Aboriginal persons and the police responses to that have always been heavy-handed and lethal a lot of the time. Um, we had the Vietnam protests and the G20 protests in Melbourne over the past decades, which had very, um, very violent police responses to them. What is new these days is the weaponry that the police have at their disposal to crowd control. Uh, it was last year that Victoria Police got millions of dollars of funding to have extra pol- uh, crowd control weapons added to their armoury. They've been called less than lethal, lethal weapons, but we do know that in other countries there have been a few instances of death from the deployment of these crowd control weapons. And can you can you discuss some of what they are? Because um, I know that there's some um, sonar um, equipment that, that they're using, but can you describe some of that just so the listeners can get an idea of what this yeah. is? Because although there's been a bit of media coverage on this, it's not the the average person isn't aware of this. No, and and look, you know, sometimes you'll see them out on the streets and you won't recognise them. Uh, we think that, you know, they'll be rolling them out slowly and uh, they're not chomping at the bit to, to have very public use of them, I don't think. But they include things um, like small um, grenade-like devices that uh, can be thrown into a crowd and then burst open and shoot out small rubber pellets that mark people with paint but can also cause injury. Uh, there's a pepper ball gun that shoots less than lethal pellets, which is um, the supposed objective is to um, disarm people and um, incapacitate them, but it can cause very serious injury. And they look like a uh, like a like a semi-automatic rifle in a, in a sense, but just in a smaller a smaller scale. Um, now, last week throughout Australia and particularly Melbourne, there was a series of public actions. Um, can you talk about some of the issues that came up last week with regards to any of the legal observation? Yeah, so there's, a, there's an international group, uh, climate change, anti-climate change activist group called the Extinction Rebellion, and they've been holding uh, regular protests, almost daily protests over the last week or so. And we've been attending um, almost every one of those protests to observe the police response and... Um, and it's been, you know, as, as with most actions that we go to, it's been a worrying, worrying response, to say the least. Uh, the police have been unfacilitative of the response, uh, which, you know, we have a right to go out and protest, just as 
um, you know, other other events have a right to hold their event that causes disruption in the city, such as, you know, the uh, the Moomba Festival or the Australia Day Parade. The police facilitate those events. Uh, and there's no necessary, you know, statutory right for someone to to do those things apart from, you know, to carry on business. But we also have a, a right to be out there in protest. And the police, really, their role should be to uphold and protect that right and to facilitate those protests. But instead, the police have been shutting them down. Um, they've been cordoning off areas, preventing people from entering the protest. And we don't see really any legal basis or legal reason for them to behave that way. Um, yeah, I mean, there's the right to peaceful assembly, freedom of association, the right to political expression. Those things are still um, rights to every citizen. They are indeed. And we also have a constitutional right to freedom of political communication. And that is the fundamental cornerstone of a democratic society. It's for people to be able to go out onto the street and to publicly um, express their views that, that may have an impact on, on our dem- the democratic running of our country. And when that happens, then it's not just about our right to protest being quashed. It's about the, the freedom of our people to engage with the running of their country that is being suppressed. If you are arrested at a rally, what are your rights? I mean, I know putting you on the spot and it's in a nutshell, what, what are your rights? Sure. So in a, in a brief nutshell, and this is just information, um, information that people can, should, should go and look further into, um, but importantly, you have the right to be treated with dignity and respect. You have the right to remain silent. Um, and apart from giving your name and your date of birth to the police, if you have been char- arrested for an offence, you have you don't have any obligation to answer any further questions. Uh, you have the right to talk to a lawyer, um, to make a call to a lawyer and a call and, a, and another separate phone call to a friend or family member. You have the right to be released from custody on bail or brought before a magistrate at the earliest opportunity. Um, and if, if there's any, if there's any um, suggestion that I could give to people, it was, it, it's just to take some deep breaths and remain calm and just remember that just because your right to liberty, which is your right to, to walk around freely, has been momentarily lost, you have many other rights to keep, to keep you safe and protected while you're in police custody. But I do highly recommend, if you are thinking that you'll be in a position of being arrested, that you jump on our website or um, any other of the many um, legal aid websites out there and have a good read about what your custody rights are. And we'll give out those details um, on our Facebook page and at the end of the program. Um, I wanted to ask you, finally, how do people, um, if anybody out there listening is interested in becoming a part of the Melbourne Activist Legal Support or wants to um, assist you in any way, um, how can they get involved? Yeah, amazing. We're always on the hunt for passionate um, people to, to join the team. So you can become a legal observer by um, getting onto our website, melbourneactivistlegalsupport.org.au uh, and signing up to an email alert about our next induction training. Um, once you've done that, you can also very welcome to join the organising team and help out with the back-end stuff as well. And if you can't, um, if you can't get along on the ground and, and commit your time, you can always jump onto our page and, um, and donate some money so that we can get ourselves some, some new equipment to, um, to better 
to better record and document um, protests. Thank you for talking to me today, Sophie, and uh, great work that you guys are doing on keeping the streets safer. Oh, no worries at all. Thank you for the great work that you guys do at 3CR. And echoing those sentiments, just to uh, provide the website, it was mentioned in the interview, um, Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Its website is literally the name, Melbourne Activist Legal Support, altogether, lower caps, dot org. And on there you can find their news, their um, views and kind of resources. Uh, it, it's just a very useful website. So it has coverage of the recent protests and um, alleged violations that the legal support have brought up as potential problems or, or breaches of civil and political rights. And yeah, just absolute legends, those guys. Um, down at the IMARC protests, I can say for certain they were so involved in ensuring that they were documenting people's rights that they had capsicum spray in their hair. They were that close. We're going to jump to a song and then we'll be back with um, some coverage from the UN International Day of Peace. This is Avant Gardner by Courtney Barnett.
And that was Avant Gardner by Courtney Barnett. You're listening to 3CR. It's coming up to 7.31, and we've got some awesome conversation to listen back to. So this is from the UN International Day of Peace, as I said earlier, and the conference was called Melbourne, No Australian Support for US Wars. Or maybe it was No Australian Support for US Wars held in Melbourne. That sounds more accurate. Now, this was from the 21st of September, so we're going back a little bit of a while, but these speeches are kind of timeless in their content. So the first one we're going to listen to is O'Neill Waramari, a West Papuan student, and he'll be just discussing around, um, yeah, the conference. O'Neill Waramari. Thank you, thank you. Maikai, 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 everyone. Um, I'd like to acknowledge traditional custodians of this land. Always was, always will be our Aboriginal land. Um, my name is O'Neill. I'm West Papuan Students Activist, currently doing a master's degree in international community development. You all have seen the media reports of the last weeks showing a horrific human rights abuse in West Papua. Not just of people in West Papua, but also the university students and other West Papuan students who live in Indonesia outside West Papuan Island. As a West Papuan postgraduate student in, in Australia, I'm asking your help on behalf of many West Papuans who are suffering, the ordinary people, the villages, the people who get shot, tortured, forced to flee from their village simply because of wanting to achieve self-determinations of our own country. Suddenly, the international community is becoming aware of what's happening in West Papua that all already been happening for a very long time. Independence for West Papua seemed close when the Dutch left the East Indies, but instead 27 years ago, on this very day, today, 21st September in 1962, West Papua made a United Nations Trust Territory, where the UN assumed responsibility for interests and welfare of my people. Independence still seemed within reach. The UN promised an eventual free and fair act of self-determination for the West Papuans. However, in 1960s, so-called act of free choice was needed fair or not free. The Indonesian military selected and isolated 1,025 West Papuan men from the whole populations of the country and compelled them to vote for integration with Indonesia. This result was accepted by the United Nations with the encouragement of Australia and the United States, which then, as now, were keen to support the Indonesian genocide, the West Papuan genocide by Indonesia. Recently, violence against Papuans at home and elsewhere in Indonesia has escalated very substantially. I won't go into details, as you will have seen some of it on your, sc- on your screen and social media, about how they torture my people, West Papuan people. A day ago, a baby was shot to death in the mother arms, and her 10-year-old son shot dead beside her. Abuse is not just physical. West Papuans are subjected to the most hurtful and personal verbal abuse, comparing us to the animals, ridiculing our dark skin and frizzy hair. And we are melanations, full stop. Very different culturally and physically from Indonesian people. The country is one half a huge melanation island 
The other half is the independent state of Papua New Guinea. It's independent like almost every other Pacific nation. Where the colonial masters have been long withdrawn, our Pacific brothers and sisters have their independence. They are supporting us in our struggles. So tonight, there will be a West Papua music album launch. So if you want to hear more about West Papua issues, please come over to Brunswick Town Hall. There will be Pacific food and Pacific music. And yeah, I want all of us to invite more Australian community to know on how they can get involved. Because it's taxpayers' money that fueling the genocide in West Papua. We want an end to shooting the torture, the personal humiliation. We want a genuine chance to choose our future. We want to be custodians of our own land and our benefit directly to our own resources, which is very considerable. The Freeport Mines, the most productive gold mine in the world. There's also oil and massive deposit of copper. As well, large-scale economic development is taking place across West Papua from logging, agricultural plantations, and gas extractions. Fast areas of land taken with little or no compensation at all to West Papua indigenous people. West Papuans are vast, becoming a minority in our own country. People from Jaffa are relocated to West Papua, given the land to settle down. Our culture becomes strange to us. But in this scale of this transmigration is a liberate, deliberate move to overwhelm positions, overwhelm us. And senior positions are mostly held by Indonesian, not West Papuans in all big mining and gas corporate company in West Papua. Business and economic activities are dominated by migrants. Educations and health services are very poor in most regions in West Papua. The West Papuan are the poorest of the poorest, are the less educated and most unhealthy populations in all over Indonesia. What is happening in West Papua is referred as a slow motions genocide. Help us, please. There are numbers of ways of Australian government to help, a, to help West Papuan people. We can call the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Australia, Maurice Payne, to abolish the Lombok Treaty. Because that's what stopping Australia to send a UN peacekeeping mission to go across the, the border to West Papua to help West Papuan people. And also there are many ways Australians can help West Papua. A very effective way is through your politicians. Write or visit your local members requesting that they raise an urgent concern of West Papua below with the Australian Department of Foreign Minister and Attorney General Office. It's very importantly, we are calling the Australian Minister of Defence to bring about an immediate end to training Indonesian soldier in Australia. If it is these people who comprise the militia which patrol West Papua and intimidate and injured my people, West Papuan people. 
As individuals, Australians can keep themselves well informed on West Papua. We need to read, watch and listen and aware about what's happening in West Papua because we are your closest neighbor. Go to the frequent talks and seminars being held at the present and become familiar with West Papua recent history and the fact that we West Papuan people, we speak with our, uh, within ourselves. For me, as a West Papuan, in West Papuan community, we are low in number outside of West Papua. In Australia, we're just less than 100. How can we make, how can we organize, mobilize community to build an effective campaign with us in here being treated as a second-class citizen, migrants or refugee. So for me, it's a call out for all of us. Whatever you can contribute to support our West Papua struggle, West Papua campaign, please do it. Call the petitions with the union, work on the boycott campaign, because we can, we can, we can just leave people die every single day and do business as usual. This is applied for me as a West Papuan community, and as a students, as a migrants, as a refugee. Please, we need to work together as one community. Thank you. And those are the wonderful, powerful words of O'Neill at Waramami. Um, I'm going to play a song by Stav, which is a local Melbourne artist, and then we'll be back in with our first interview.
And that was Every Day, Every Day by Stav, a wonderful little song. Next up, vocational education is a great way to prepare yourself for the workforce when you finish high school and thousands of Australians enrol in TAFE every year. But how certain can you be that the school is there for you? In the past, students in the vocational sector have had few financial protections in the case that their course is discontinued or their school grades grow under. Well, the school goes under. And what about if your private education provider folds and wants you to transfer credit for courses to another school? Under the proposed tuition protection bill, um, this aims, this is aims to fix this and other issues surrounding TAFE. But the National Union of Students has made a submission yesterday that says more needs to be done. I'm talking to Desiree Kai, National President of the National Union of Students, who's going to tell us more. Good morning, Desiree. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, first off, can you give us an idea of what challenges students face in the vocational education sector? Yeah, well, in terms of the entire sector, I guess we have an issue where students are going to universities instead of um, TAFEs and vocational education where they might be better suited because of, um, I guess, the incredible work of marketing teams at university and the lack of that in um, TAFEs and vocational education. So really, instead of targeting school leavers, we have... Um, you know, taste and vocational education targeting, um, you know, an older cohort, which is good and necessary. But also you have stories of a lot of students saying that going through university, going through their three or five year degrees mm. and realising that they actually haven't gotten what they've needed out of their degree at the end and going back to TAFE afterwards. Um, so at a fundamental level, that's a very broad scale of like what is yeah. um, I guess challenging right. TAFE and vocational education in Australia right now mm-hmm. um, but also like I guess the entire sector has been of vocational education has seen massive funding cuts and even just um, in the last month or so uh, the government has ditched its education investment fund which was a you know four um, four billion or million dollars that um, was used to invest in infrastructure uh, and technology at taste and, um, and you know that's all gone now so we have uh, and, and that's really cut against the history of um, cuts to vocational education funding Right, and and kind of referencing some of the issues that are, as you say, in the TAFE sector, are things such as like course defaulting uh, when your courses are cancelled before you finish them, or difficulty getting credits transferred and moving to new courses, a, a general lack of regulation in private vocational education sectors. Um, this this funding cut, are we planning to see an exacerbation of these issues? Um, I think it's interesting when you tie them with the private providers because obviously TAFE mm. is our public provider of vocational education and yeah. um, as such, when government doesn't fund it, we have massive issues mm. um, and private providers are sort of there to fill the gap. Mm, um, okay. yeah, and, and then you come across these issues of you know, dodgy private providers really like um, going under and taking the students with them. Um, and that's really what this bill is about protecting. So the government sort of instituted this tuition protection levy that, mm-hmm. um, like that private institutes have to pay, um, in order to like guarantee that, um, students who are on a government loan to be at their provider, uh, that, you know, their, their money is protected and that they have provisions to transfer them into a new course. Um, the thing that this legislation doesn't really cover is students who pay upfront, which is actually a large majority of vocational education students. Um, and also there are some interesting issues with the way that this uh, uh, sort of legislation also 
um, asks TAFE to pay fees, um, mm-hmm. even though TAFEs are really, like, TAFEs don't fold. You know, TAFEs aren't like the other training providers, the private training providers who have a likelihood of, um, uh-huh. you know, going under and taking and just, students' courses. And, just yeah. touching on that, sorry, just touching on that um, private vocational education institutions folding, um, could we kind of talk about that? Where does that leave students uh, kind of falling through the cracks, the educational cracks? Yeah. Well, that is kind of what's happened in um, in the past, mm-hmm. and there have been massive stories in like the last few years about um, yeah, students who just don't know where to go after their providers fold. And I, there is a obligation on providers to um, like transfer or make some arrangements for students when their courses fold to go to another similar course and be able right. to finish their degree. But oftentimes, like it's really hard to get that transfer over. The courses might be too different so they have to start over and then again there's the issue of the money um if they're going to be you know <laughs> compensated for yeah. their loss so there's like a massive disconnect between the two sectors would uh, that be a fair enough statement or what do you mean by a massive disconnect between um if you if you're transferring from a private thing that's gone under to a tafe course and kind of trying to kind yeah, of mop totally. up your grades mop up your your skill set that you've picked up and yeah transfer um yeah. so kind of touching on this bills the NUS has made a submission to the Senate Education and Employment Legislation Committee uh, yesterday morning where you were broadly supportive of the tuition protection bill uh, but with some significant reservations um you've kind of touched on them but could you could you give us a summary of where does the bill fall short yeah so the first thing is that the bill only covers um vet students who have taken out a government loan in order to pay for their uh, education. And in reality, uh, the majority of students at private providers are not paying um, through the government. They're paying out of their pockets. They're paying Mm. through um, potential employers. Um, So, you know, there's a large number of students who really aren't covered. Um, It's not like in vocational education, it's not really like... Um, universities where the majority of people are paying under HEX help, um, it's quite like the opposite. Right. So all those students, um, all those domestic students who uh, are paying out of their notes are not really protected under this, um, aside from those like rehousing, you know, students into new courses. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably the main issue. And the Mm. other is, yeah, about TAFEs and the sort of, um, I guess they're putting a a fee on TAFE to really cover what, like, the risk of defaulting when TAFE reali- in reality won't default. Right, okay. You know, public institutions, yeah. which is, you know, interesting That's, because universities mm. don't really face, like, universities aren't needed in this legislation because mm. obviously you know, public universities, you don't really expect that they will fold. Um, mm. And it should be the same with TAFE, but the government sort of, like, pushed on with that as an oversight, um, which is really interesting and strange. Yeah, okay. And and is is it doing anything to address kind of poorly managed or under-resourced private institutions I- I- at all? So it doesn't actually go that far in terms oh. of the regulation from the outset. It just talks about protecting when things go wrong. Right, okay. So it's kind of providing a solution but not actually addressing root causes, would you say? Yeah, it's really a band-aid for a wider problem. Oh, okay. So in kind of contrast to this bill or, or even the issues we're seeing in the sector, what does need to be done to build a stronger TAFE? What would be the the utopia of kind of legislation that you, you the NUS, wants to see kind of pushed through? Uh, I think the most fundamental thing is, like, funding. Um, but aside from yeah. that, 
the other things um, that we need uh, for uh, the government to have like a clear even like direction and policy and support the TAFE mm. um, because there doesn't seem to be a plan for TAFE currently. Yeah. Uh, and that's really important, obviously, because education is moving towards a more vocational direction. More and more uni students are coming out of uni being like, I wish I had more industry. Mm, and absolutely. TAFE yeah. can really step in. Um, and then aside from that also, TAFE, and I don't know if this is known by many people, but like they do provide some higher education qualifications. So some TAFEs are already providing bachelor's degrees because there is a need for that industry-specific experience within um, mm. a bachelor's degree, which universities are potentially not best to, uh, equipped to provide. Um, and But despite that, you know, taste and vocational education um, uh, providers, they're really not in the conversation about higher education at all. It's really dominated by universities, and I think they could be more of a balance. Absolutely, and touching on touching on that idea of you know the government lacking any direction for TAFEs. I know when I went through the high school system and you faced the VC discussion, it was this assumption that you go to university. And I've yeah. watched as so many students go into university courses and they've either gone into the one they they can get into. It's like kind of desperate. They're like, oh yep, the, I meet that criteria, tick. Or yeah. they've been kind of. Um, almost uh, encouraged because, you know, oh, you're really smart, you got a 99, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You should go into law, you know, being pushed into courses. And Mm -hmm. there seems to be a real lack of advertising of TAFE opportunities in our our schools. Definitely. Mm. Yeah, and then, again, back to universities have massive marketing teams. Mm. Um, And also TAFEs are now, you know, we used to have a world-class TAFE system, but that's been run down. And aside from that also, we have this rhetoric in our society where, People see TAFE as your backup option. Yeah. Like okay. TAFE is what you do when you can't make it to university. And that's like what I've experienced as, you know, going from high school to university as well, just like you um, outlined. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like a, a stigma, like a tradie stigma almost, yeah. that sort of thing of, oh, you're doing, yeah. you know, essential services our society will always need. Oh, it's, it's not book worthy, though. <laughs> it's a really odd yeah. disconnect. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, I suppose kind of, yeah, talking about that, talking about marketing, talking about that um, for-profit model, do you think good education can come out of that for-profit model? I think if it does, it needs heavy regulation. Mm. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah. Like, there are, you know, there's definitely, I think um, we have an issue where our public, like, if you talk specifically about vocational education, our public institutions have been so, like, diminished and they have a lack of funding and they really didn't have a way to cope with it. So our tastes are really not where they used to be. Mm. Um, And so in that context, private providers are necessary to actually provide what students need. Um, but, you know, in a utopian world, there would be enough funding for, yeah. you know, the gotcha. public institution to do that. So this is like one step forward, but we need to keep pushing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So if, if people do want to keep up with this issue, um, how can they do that? Can we support the NUS through any particular means? Yeah. Well, give us a follow on Facebook. <laughs> nice. um, and I, I, I guess... The other thing we are trying to do is mm. to ensure that there is more student representation at vocational education institutes and TAFEs. So if there are any, um, you know, vocational students who think, hey, I don't have any representation on campus as a student, mm. um, you know, because universities have these large student unions who are well-established, but TAFEs and vocational education institutes don't tend to do that. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done in pushing for more student representation to improve 
our education conditions. So, yeah, get involved. Um, sends a message if you're, you know, a TAFE student and you're interested in what that might look like. Um, yeah, and give mm. us a follow on Facebook. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, fantastic. And on Facebook, you literally are listed as NUS National Union of Students, so you can't go wrong. <laughs> nice and easy to find. Well, thank you so much, Desiree, for coming on to this morning. No, thanks for having me. And that was Desiree Kai um, from the National Union of Students talking about the TAFE sector, which I think is, yeah, it's a bit um, down looked upon, even though it's a fantastic sector, which is, again, essential to our society's running. We're going to play a quick song. This is one of my personal favourites. It's Sensory Memory by Jen Cloa. We'll maybe follow up with a few community announcements, and then we'll be in for our 8 o'clock interview, which also is going to be very exciting. Wonderful show today, actually. It's bumping along nicely. I start missing you days before you leave I guess it's a kind of sensory memory Deep below the conscious Mind you, I can be on my own I'm a lonely child I like my company Part around, make another part of it to is when you come home You sit and eat breakfast eggs with soldier toes
This is Courtney Barnett. Please support and subscribe to Community Radio 3CR. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Fawn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1800 542 847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. It's an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. And you're listening to 3CR. The time is 8.03. And we've got our next interview kind of coming up. So to start this off, it's been a busy year for transnational gold mining company Oceana Gold. Uh, In July the 4th, the company stopped trucking in its gold and copper mine in the Philippines after a dispute with the provincial government over its license to operate at the site. This came in response to local government units from the local province blocking access to the mine site um, in response to a directive from the governor to restrain the company's operations. Authorities claim that this has been largely bypassed in the permit renewal process, or they'd been largely bypassed in the permit renewal process, and that was the cause of their kind of dispute. However, the mine does continue. Its permit did arrive on June the 20th um, from the regulatory authority, the Mines and Geosciences Bureau, but it has put the company in kind of a spotlight, um, which has been previously accused of environmental and huge humanitarian crimes. So this is one of the quiet operators that I think we never really hear about in the Australian media. So I thought we'd get Andrew from the Philippines Australian Solidarity Association to tell us a bit more. Good morning, 
Andrew. Yeah, good morning, Odwin. Thanks for having me. No problem. So that was a bit of a wacko summary. Could you kind of yeah. tell me what, what's been going on with Oceana Gold this year? Yeah, so th- this year um, their mining licence expired mm-hmm. back, back in June uh, and um, that's been used by as an opportunity by the, the, the locals in the towns called Adibio mm-hmm. where the, the mine is um, to increase their efforts to uh, shut down the mine. They, mm-hmm. They've been resisting this mine since long before it began. So it started operating in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, they never gave consent for the mine to go ahead, but the mine went ahead anyway. Right. Uh, and with the expiry of the licence, um, that's given them the chance with the support of the provincial government. So that's the government... The province is called Nueva Biscaya, mm-hmm. and the governor there has supported their cause for a long time. And so they were able to put up a, a, a blockade or a barricade, and they called it the People's Barricade, mm-hmm. um, that prevented the trucks coming in and out and forced the mine to shut down. So this has been Oceana Gold is obviously an Australian mining company, yeah. gold mining company that has now kind of expanded internationally. Um, This is really a fight against the local versus the Australian company. Could you kind of give us an idea of this dispute? You say it's been going on for a long time. What's the nature of it or the character of it? Yeah, so um, it was back in the 80s when Ocean and Gold first started um, prospecting into DPO. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, by the 90s, they'd got national government approval. But as I mentioned, the local government's never wanted the mine, they always opposed it. Mm. Uh, and Oceana Gold used all kinds of dirty tricks to, mm. to try and get their mine up and running. Um, so it's been described in a... There's a great report by the Oxfam Mining Ombudsman mm-hmm. that describes the way they were kicked off the land as uh, forceful um, displacement. So th- they, they hired a... a, a a couple of lawyers who had a track record of kicking local people off off their land, uh, and those lawyers essentially used standover tactics to frighten people and force them into. So this is Oceana Gold hiring lawyers yeah. to to basically displace people, po- populations. That that's right, um, and through harassment and intimidation, uh, they also bribed local officials. Um, so those local officials were offered high prices for the land. That if, if they sold, of course, uh, yeah. and 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 received payments, mm. uh, so um, yeah, that, that, those were the kind of tactics that they used. <coughs> excuse me to, to gain access mm. to, to the land, but it, it's clear that they, the locals never gave consent, and they've always opposed. Absolutely, and as you've mentioned, uh, the effects on the local people from this mine are mm. displacement, but also there's been a bit of conflict between them. Could, could you kind of give us an idea of what the yeah what the effects have been on the local population? Yeah, it, it did bring division in, in the early days. So mm-hmm. there's some people, you know, as I mentioned, there was some local government official, officials were bribed, mm. um, and so there's there's some that brought a level of disharmony to the local community, where some people thought it was a good idea and others didn't. But on the whole. Mm. The, the, the people at DPO have opposed the mine. Um, but there, there have been, as a consequence, um, some really serious human rights abuses. So people have been mm. beaten up, but worse, um, people have been uh, murdered. And, and so there were, there's a, a anti-mining activist, uh, Cheryl Ananeo, uh, who uh, was, was, was murdered together with her, her cousin, 
um, back in 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and another anti-mining activist, Brian Aper, was uh, disappeared. So he was arrested by the Philippine National Police and mm-hmm. around the same time and hasn't been seen since. Goodness gracious. And I suppose the question might... The, the question I came out of this, uh, I mean, I heard you speak at IMARC mm. uh, protest, which I mentioned earlier on the show, but the question I got out of this is how do we not hear about this from Oceana Gold's perspective? I mean, mm. how have they got away with this for so long? Who are, who are they getting support from? Yeah, look, I, I, I don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I know that um, their efforts are promoted by the Australian government. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years back, the, the Australian ambassador in the Philippines was, was tweeting what a fantastic mining company this is. Mm. Um, so heavy endorsement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Philippine National Government have, have supported it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't explain why, nor can I explain why the, the media doesn't pay more attention to this. Mm. Um, it, do you think it's because it's, there's such a cultural protections around mining industries and especially that Australian... Because we, we do know that Australian mm. mining companies throughout the world, going throughout outside of Australian borders, are committing atrocities wherever they go. Yeah. There seems to be this culture of protection around them. Would you say that's, that's pr- definitely present in the Philippines? They get away with it. Mm. Um, yeah, and certainly look, they have support from the... the National government in the Philippines, the Australian government. I, I, I really couldn't, can't explain why. No, it's, yeah. But the mind boggles. Absolutely. And just talking about your kind of uh, association, the Philippines, mm. um, Australian Solidarity Association. Could you kind of give us an idea of how you guys formed and what you're busy doing around this issue? Yeah. So we came together back in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a, a bunch of people, Filipino Australians and, and other Australians, who had an interest in the Philippines and. Mm. Uh, um, at that time, we just wanted to get together and tackle any issues that um, we, we thought were worth tackling. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the, the first thing that we started campaigning on back then were human rights abuses committed by the armed forces of the Philippines, mm-hmm. um, sponsored by the Philippine government at the time. So this was um, the Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo was the president at the time, and she, uh, through um, the military, was, was were attacking her, her political opponents, mm. um, and uh, around 800 people were, were murdered during her regime. Mm. Um, and so we, that was one of our the early things that we campaigned on, um, and and thankfully that spate of killings was was brought to to an end. There was a, a couple of inquiries, including one by the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights that. Mm. Um, Force them to you know, expose them, expose one particular general, uh, Palparani's name is in particular, and force them to, to stop that ca- campaign against the government's political opponents. Mm. Um, and and so we started um, hearing more about the DPO uh, back in around 2013, and so that, that was at the time that the mine was beginning to operate and started to get involved in campaigning on it back mm. then. Absolutely. And um, it was really interesting to see the kind of the, the blockade happening earlier this year and also um, the mines and Oceanic Gold statement mm. backwards. Because I noticed uh, a lot of writing around the, the blockade was from activist perspectives were like huge statements of intention and stuff like that, whereas the media statement released by Oceanic Gold was 
like three paragraphs. Okay. Um, one of the points they made was that um, there's actually huge, significant socioeconomic benefits uh, to DPO um, from neighbouring communities, um, directly employing 1,500 workers and approximately 95% of are Philippine nationals, including 50% from local communities and several thousand additional livelihood opportunities is what they claimed. Yeah. Could I just kind of get your thoughts on those claims? Because that was that's the seems to be the only statement we've got back from Oceana Gold. Yeah. About their about their operations. Yeah, look, I I, I can't dispute those figures. I don't really know mm. uh, how many people they employ, but the 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 harm that they cause mm. would far outweigh it. So, the local fishing and agricultural industries have been destroyed by the water pollution that's been caused by the mine. So it's brought terrible hardship, um, along with the human rights abuses that I mentioned mm. earlier. Uh, and I think that the that the local people, the people who live in the area, mm. and the provincial government oppose it. That speaks volumes that, that they don't think that whatever employment it, it brings uh, is, is worthwhile. The final thing I'd say is mm-hmm. that um, one of the, the Oceana Gold speakers at IMARC mm. uh, was there to speak about uh, automation of their under, underground mine. And by the way, the underground part of the mine, they didn't have. A permit for so it wasn't part of their original environment oh, impact statement. Right. So they they expanded their mine without. So it's a little quiet breach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so so they're focusing on minimising employment at yeah. the same time as claiming that they're employing lots of people. Absolutely, and like a lot of the um, companies that went to IMARC, there was a, there was this real strong culture of greenwashing almost with this <sighs> this automation discussion and yeah. kind of band-aid solutions to the huge environmental mm. havoc they've wrecked. Um, obviously, the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association does kind of do activism around Oceania Gold, but also uh, the government at large and human rights abuses within the country. Mm. Um, I've got your Facebook page here, which yeah. is the Philippines Australian Solidarity Association, PASA, for anyone interested in kind of going. How can we follow this story, though? Is Facebook the best way to follow you guys? Yeah, I think Facebook is the best way to follow us. Mm-hmm. Um, if listeners are really kind of interested, um, feel free to come along to our regular meetings. So mm-hmm. we meet uh, the first Friday of every month at Trades Hall. Um, so, yeah, Facebook, mm-hmm. um, if, if you really can, come along to meetings. Um, we, we hold um, forums fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, we'll, we'll, we've got a, our International Human Rights Day every year. We celebrate Human Rights Day. Mm. So that's a celebration that everyone's welcome to come along to as well. That's coming up uh, December, is it the 8th? <laughs> I'll check it. <laughs> Thank I'll you. check it for you. you. Don't worry. Yeah. No, no problem. And I suppose, as, as you said, this is something that the media just seems to ignore and we just don't seem to hear about. For listeners kind of getting their head around Oceana Gold and, and the Philippines at large, what are like the main takeaways? If you could do like three points, what do you want people to know for certain about them? Yeah, I will say this company's essentially committing crimes in the Philippines. That the people who, who live there and are affected by the mine, they want it shut down uh, and they want the, the, the company to be held to account. So that's what we're calling for. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And just to um, clarify, my producer has, wonderful producer has clarified that Human Rights Day is the 10th of December. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no problem. It was lovely chatting to you, Andrew. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.
scrutinize altering, faltering, fingertips entwining, elegant design, flower in full bloom, near tangible perfume. Pictures on paper and integral taper, carefully planned with a weather-worn hand, intricately lined as the stories unwind. Think of me pondering now. What's in a year if I keep it warm? is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, helping, giving us a chance to do this it's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now hopefully it goes, it keeps going you know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners We can't blame everything on the external so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 
Hi, Kerry Lee Harding here, and I want to invite you to the 2019 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 14th of November, upstairs at Mesa on Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. This is the message that we send to the black, yellow and red. I'm an Aborigine and I'd always represent. There'll be a panel discussion on justice, Indigenous incarceration and the power of radio, along with music, food and, of course, free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday the 14th of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6.30 to 8.30. See you there. Music uplifted me, took away the pain and stress. I no longer have a barricaded chest. And that was 3CR. Um, I just wanted to actually save the date. Uh, Beyond the Bars CD launch is actually happening Thursday, which is tomorrow, um, 6.30 to 8.30 at Massar Fitzroy Stars Gym. So that's um, Massar is M-A-Y-S-A-R on Gertrude Street. Uh, and it, it looks pretty amazing. I mean, Beyond the Bars is a fantastic program special that 3CR does. I don't think you get it anywhere else. So it's wonderful to go along to those sorts of CD launches. As said in the community service announcement you just heard, there's going to be a panel and some musician and all those sorts of cool things. So it's going to be wonderful. Um, just following up with the stuff we, we've gone through on the show. So we had Desiree Kai um, from the National Union of Students and Desiree is the national president talking about um, the federal government's TAFE policy and this new bill that's been introduced to kind of combat it. So that'll be really interesting. We'll have to check in with that to see where this first step towards kind of more TAFE regulation goes. And also we just were talking to Andrew from the Philippines um, Australian Solidarity Association, a group that's been blockading out the front of Oceana Gold since that mine's been active, um, since since it was introduced back in the 80s as an idea, and then since 2013 um, when it started operations. And they uh, were present at the IMARC conference last week uh, alongside a lot of other speakers. We also had the amazing words of O'Neill Wermani um, from the International Day of Peace, uh, and he did, said some amazing stuff about kind of the situation in West Papua and how we as Australians really need to be getting, well, we as people, I suppose, more so on this place, need to be getting more involved and engaged with this issue. I think both with um, West Papua and the Philippines, it's one of those issues where you can't really look away once you've tuned in. So that will be stuff we'll be monitoring and following up with throughout the next upcoming shows. Um, But now kind of wrapping up the show getting near or close to the end I thought I'd go through the weather on what Melbourne's forecast is so today it's not going to be super fun it's going to be a max of 17 degrees I suppose that's fun if, if that's if that's your ideal weather uh, there is 30% chance of rain so it might be an idea to take an umbrella and it's going to be kind of a little bit humid from the looks of it so that's going to be the weather for today. Um, we also uh, heard from the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, so from a representative from that group, uh, Sophie, this morning. We're going to put on a song to kind of finish off, and then, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll say quick goodbyes, a thank you to Earth Matters and Stick Together, and we'll be on next week on Wednesday. All right, I'm Edwin. See you later.
And that was Emily Waramara with one of her hits. Um, we're going to finish up Wednesday Breakfast now. Tune in tomorrow for Thursday Breakfast and some great coverage. Again, uh, Beyond the Bar's promo CD launch will be happening tomorrow, so that's kind of exciting, and that will be followed through. Um, next up is Stick Together. Thank you for your company this morning, and see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.